You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P. So welcome, everybody. This is uh, Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. And I'm wearing a hat tonight because it's uh, above lighting and I don't like the way it looks. Um, it is January 21st, 2021, and it is 7.35 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And last time in the class, we were talking about organizing your practice. And um, I wanted to sort of continue with that, but push more into the nature of what it is that we're attempting to do with the practice. In some sense, Uh, you could say that what we want to do is see clearly what's actually happening um, in the present moment, uh, moment by moment. So a constant monitoring of the present moment uh, and the way that we create the experience of that. Um, I've been quite fascinated with uh, uh, the Pali word uh, Taja Panati, uh, Taja Panati, means uh, constantly going back, and penati means uh, conceptual reality. And so what this word really implies is that we, we constantly are checking that the presentation that we're making, the conceptual reality that we're making is an accurate reflection of what's actually happening in the moment and how we're experiencing it. This is quite a a different concept from the typical Western way of viewing this because in the West, uh, as far back as Plato, uh, the, you know, that origin of Western philosophy, the idea was that you take in the outside and accurately develop a working model internally and that you use the internal working model to understand what's actually out there. And Plato Uh, thought that that was a very accurate representation that came on. There was some modification later um, through Aristotle, but but largely it was thought that what we see outside there, we take him accurately. Um, In Buddhist thought, this isn't at all true. What we take in out there is not a representation of what's out there, but the capacity to sense the, the values that are there based on uh, what's there. So for instance, we can detect light that's out there. We can detect sound that's out there. There's a range of sensations in the body that we can t- detect out there. And then those are, are processed for uh, the, the urgency that they have. Um, the uh, popular English translation of Vedna is feeling tones. Uh, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? And this goes to a, a teaching that we are reflexively moving away from painful experiences toward pleasant experiences. But um, when we compare that to uh, neuroscience in the West, what we see is that the processing speeds are different and the orientation is slightly different. Unpleasant becomes dangerous or urgent. Uh, Neutral becomes the vast majority of all experiences that we have. And pleasant if there's time, and uh, the the science on this is pretty good. Um, 
it takes half the intensity and three eighths of a second to process something that's urgent. The vast majority of uh, the sensing data that we pick up is never processed. And uh, if there's time, and the reason I say if there's time is because pleasant sensations require twice the duration, twice the intensity to register in, in the nervous system. And they take a half a second to process rather than three eighths of a second. The other thing that uh, they discovered is that the there's a, a flow of data in, into the, the, the brain to process it. And urgent uh, uh, material always jumps to the head of the line. So that if, if you have a pleasant experience that's happening at the same time that the mind is evaluating urgent experience, the urgent experiences will jump ahead of the pleasant experiences. And so you can uh, create this experience of just a difficult or unpleasant or uh, urgent matters and never have the experience of the pleasant uh, uh, act, uh, contacts because there isn't time to perceive them in, in this. Um, to give you an idea of how much is neutral in all of this, uh, there's a, a group of uh, French neuroscientists that have calculated that the human body in all of its sensing capacity can take in 11 million bits per second and that uh, consciousness only uh, can process 16 bits. So one six out of 11 million bits you're getting in each moment. Now, um, it's uh, 10 million bits out of that 11 million bits to process visual material, so external site space, and about 100,000 for the remaining uh, capacities of sensing. We don't, uh, the Buddha said, take in what's out there directly. We have an indirect experience of it. We experience it through conceptual reality, through this experience that we make. And that's projected outward. And so we live, you know, you've, um, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, live as if you're living in a dream. But uh, really what that means is that you're living in conceptual reality, which you create internally and project outward. This is quite different than the idea that you're taking in a working model and it's accurately reflecting because we create this uh, conceptual reality out of uh, the perceptual database. And so it really depends on what's in the database in, in how we make uh, this reality up. This doesn't mean it can't accurately reflect what's happening and it can't be truthful. In fact, it would be better if it were. Uh, what it means is that it doesn't necessarily have to be accurate and truthful. It can be distorted um, by either the database or the, the quality of the, the system that's taking in the sensing experience. So the Buddha said, if the mind is equanimous, then you have a better chance of taking in an, uh, an accurate and truthful uh, experience of what's happening. But if, but if the body-mind is distorted in a particular way, it distorts the creation of this conceptual reality. And that if you're unable to detect the distortions, then, you, then uh, you will make an intention and take an action related to the distortion, which will uh, be different than the conditions that are in the present moment. 
This is then relating to the concept of karma. We take, uh, an, we make an intention and we take an action based on our perception of what's actually happening. And if it's a true and accurate perception, then the action that we take is in, in, in line with that. And if it's distorted and we don't notice the distortion, we take an action and uh, we create an intention to take, a, take an action that is not in accordance with actually what's happening. The question I always ask is, have you ever misunderstood what's going on and then reacted to it and then recognized that it's not making sense, their reaction is not making sense to how you perceived what was actually happening in the moment. So uh, I often uh, think of it as this rocking back and forth. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I'm making. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I'm making. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I'm making. And when you look at this process of that happening, we have the capacity to sense, we have the object that can be sensed, and when they meet, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises. And then that's what gets processed. That sensing activity, that unfixated, undifferentiated sensing experience in, in uh, Buddhist uh, circles, if you're not also engaged in the attachment world, attachment uh, means something else. Attachment and non-attachment is the, is the way that we talk about it. If, you're, if you haven't attached to something, then it's just the raw sensing experience. And as soon as you attach something, as soon as you attach meaning to it, it becomes this solid experience of something. Um, and so what we want to do is pay attention to that process in, the, in the, the way in which we use Vipassana meditation. Vipassana, V means to divide and uh, Pasana means to see clearly or to reflect back. Um, because consciousness is behind what's actually happening, that uh, idea of reflecting backwards is a pretty good one. It's a pretty accurate description of what's actually happening. In this understanding of processing speed, consciousness takes a half a second uh, for the body-mind to create it. And so anything that's happening in the actual present moment, we don't really have the capacity to experience directly. It takes three-eighths of a second to process urgent material and a half a second to process pleasant material. And it takes a half a second to create a conscious experience of what's happening. So we are always essentially running a half a second behind. This is why in sports they say you have to play in the zone, you can't play in, in, in the experience of it because if you uh, have a conscious experience of the tennis ball going by and you swing your racket in response to it, it's actually going by a half a second to go and you won't be able to hit it. You have to be able to just be in the unconscious, that, that unconscious process. And as you investigate it, what you begin to see is, of course, the conscious representation of this is not actually what's happening. This points to the teaching on self and no self. You are not actually in consciousness making these decisions. You are watching it, uh, the outcome of the decision-making process in consciousness. The self is not actually in charge. It's not making the decisions. It's not doing this. These are all unconscious processes. And consciousness exists so that we can monitor those things 
and at the last second abandon something that's unskillful. So um, when we practice meditation, of course, what we're trying to do is sensitize ourselves to this process so that we can begin to see it clearly. We see how the material is taken in and we see how it's made and in that investigation back and forth, we begin to know things about the way that we create conceptual reality that informs us about the content of the database, that is to say, our conditioning or our conditioned responses to things. What you begin to notice is that you're not actually creating this accurate record of what's out there, you're creating a uh, representation of what's out there based on what your preferences are. That the eye does not thoroughly scan the scene that's around you then create a model of it. It takes these snapshots, these pieces, uh, these punch outs of what's out there and then it creates from that group of selections the experience of the world. Um, this is also can be applied to the experience of yourself or the experience of other people. Often in Buddhism, what we mean by the world is the experience of other people. So if you're not creating a, a whole picture, what, it is, what are the pieces that you're pulling out of that? And then you begin to uh, develop this understanding of the preferences that you have and the aversions that you have. We often create a map of the world based on what our preferences are uh, and we exclude things from it that we don't want represented in it. This could be positive or negative. You have a negative bias so you keep creating these worlds that are quite negative uh, and you leave out all of the positive pieces that might be there or you could go the other way, create a world that's completely uh, deliriously Pollyanna-ish with no uh, uh, negative qualities to it at all. And, what happens in these distortions, of course, is you don't attend to the thing that's missing. So uh, if you get too Pollyanna-ish, then you don't attend to any of the difficulties. And so they go unanswered and, and can create greater difficulties. Or you focus only on the negative aspects of experience and you never engage in the positive aspects of experience, then, then uh, life becomes quite dour. And, difficult, more and more difficult than it need be. Um, one of the other things that's uh, interesting about this uh, process, of course, is imagination. Um, some uh, people have, are, are, are thought to be more imaginative than other people, but we, we have the capacity to restrict our imagination when you rely on a perceptual database of, I, I like to say previously fixated things or experiences that we've already had and made sense of, what happens when you have a novel experience? How do you respond to that? And here is where we begin to look at the capacity to imagine outcomes um, that are different than what's actually happened to us. Uh, in childhood, of course, the, when you're first um, born, you don't have uh, the capacity for that. Um, human babies are born uh, in comparison to other species, species quite premature. 
and, and it really has a lot to do with the, the nature of the brain. Um, the evolutionarists think that the reason that the human brain is born so prematurely is because if it were fully developed uh, in utero, it would be too large to fit through the birth canal. And so we have to be born with a smaller head than say the head of a great ape would be. A great ape when they're born has the capacity of an 18 month old human baby. They can grab onto the mother. They, can, they have the physical strength to hold on so that when the mother moves across the savanna, they, they can hold on. The human baby can't, can't even approach something like that. So we are one of the species where the environment that we grow up in has a tremendous impact on us because our brain develops and creates a structure based on the experience of the environment that we grow up in. And so we don't even have the same uh, brain really, depending on what our conditioning is. Uh, and the way that it operates can be quite different. This is where the uh, Western idea of attachment comes in. The understanding that depending on what your early experiences were, your actual experiences, the physical quality of the brain changes and the, the, the capacity of the brain to respond to the conditions of the present moment can be quite different one brain uh, to the next based on uh, attachment. Um, we're born, the right brain, uh, uh, the brain stem is fully formed, the right brain is partially formed, and the left brain is largely unformed. And, uh, if you've ever been around small kids, you know uh, uh, as, uh, in the early part of their life, they play in a very rote manner. Things are very literal, and that's because the left brain is not formed yet. And then at a certain point, when the left brain develops enough that imagination is a possibility, then they become imaginative in their play and it's no longer a bucket of sand, it's a, it's a castle. Um, it's no longer a stick, it's a sword. Uh, that's the kind of shift that happens. But in, in childhood, if the things that you imagine and that you want, you can't really get uh, and it causes you pain, you can begin to limit the capacity to imagine and the more uh, deprived you are, of the, the things that you want in childhood, the more you limit your imagination to the point where you can be quite unimaginative. And what that means is that when you turn toward the perception of what's happening in the present moment, if you, if you come to a place uh, in the database where there's no entries that describe what's actually happening and you've limited your capacity to imagine, then then you move uh, the, or you define or create the experience of conceptual reality based on what data is there. And uh, the word for this in uh, uh, Pali is samsara, this constant repetition of the, the patterns, the habitual patterns of life that you can't uh, find a way out of. The reason you don't, of course, is because you create the perception that that's actually what's happening and you act as if that were true. Uh, we like, uh, we call that unconscious or deluded um, moha. So <clears throat> the idea then is to push into this uh, process with your meditation to be able to begin to see these processes happen and unfold uh, 
most of the time, all of these experiences are going to be unconscious because the processing speed of the brain is fast enough that the, the, the definition of what the unfixated or the unattached, non-attached sensing experiences happens. And uh, after it's fixated, it, we have the conscious experience of it already solid. Uh, and that, that's why this idea of reflecting backwards makes so much sense. Um, this constant rocking back and forth. This is what I'm perceiving. This is what's out there. This is what the body-mind has created from the sensing experience. Can I touch into the sensing experience and discover what's there so that I can tell whether or not I've created a representation of the world that is accurate and true Um, this is, an, this is uh, very pressing to me uh, lately because of the, the, the capacity for people to really represent the world in a way that seems grossly distorted to me. Um, you may also have that experience of it. Uh, the, uh, the, current president is President Biden and uh, the, the conspiracy theories that were developed and believed by a large segment of the population to be true didn't materialize. I didn't ever think that they would materialize because the way that I represented the experience of what was happening didn't, didn't make sense. Uh, it, it was so far away from the way that I make the experience of the world. Um, but that doesn't mean that other people didn't have the perception of the world as being that way and, and expecting that, that that is what would happen. And then when it didn't happen, uh, this disorienting experience of not understanding how uh, their perception of things could be so different than uh, what actually happens. We live in this process of creating our own version of what's happening and everybody lives in this same place of creating this version of what's happening. And so we need to be able to move uh, further into this dialogue with other people about what their experience is without uh, uh, needing to defend necessarily differences from our own experience. It's a kind of collaborative, collaborative experience with other people. This is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on? And can we come to a sense of uh, understanding about the nature of each other's uh, creation of experience by being open and, and, and communicative about what that experience is and how it comes about? this pattern recognition that comes from previously recognized patterns and this capacity for imagination, understanding that if our imagination is limited, we can open it back up. And if we don't have experiences that we can have new experiences. Um, one of the things I think that's uh, wonderful about this kind of exchange is that it opens up the capacity to um, really understand each other. 
really understand what our experiences has been and how that creates these experiences. Thank you so much. I love you. Keep going. <laughs> I'm a guest uh, in somebody's house and uh, uh, they're having a, a, a belated Christmas party in the other room. So, um, <clears throat> So what would a good, good example of that be? Um, are you afraid of dogs or are you not afraid of dogs? Um, do you think dogs are cute or you do not care? Um, do you keep a dog or you do not keep a dog? Um, that might be one thing. Um, I live, I'm in a household where there are now five dogs. And they're all different sizes from a puppy that's about eight weeks old to a giant uh, golden, uh, what is he? The big blonde dog that's very slobbery. Uh, <laughs> I like dogs, but it, it, it's good for a few pats and then I'm pretty much done. Um, uh, they seem like dogs to me, but I, I see that other people really uh, have a deep bond the, the animals, which I don't really experience. Um, even though I did grow up with a dog. Uh, Neil, you seem to have a dog on your lap. <laughs> um, how is that that you got there? That you like to have one and other people don't like to have one? What color are your walls? And did you choose the color of your walls or were the walls that color? And if you chose the color of the wall, why did you choose that color of the wall? And if you didn't choose the color, why did you leave it the way that it was? All of these things, uh, all of these little pieces. When you walk into a place, does it seem warm or does it seem cold? Does it seem cozy? Cozy is one of those words that uh, baffles me most of the time. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I often work with people and uh, I ask them to describe a safe place and the first thing that they say is, it's cozy. Um, but never occurred to me to say that because I, uh, that isn't uh, what I think of as safe. Um, but, you know, the range of these possibilities is quite vast. And so it's very interesting that uh, uh, to really uh, come into that. Uh, conversation with somebody else and go into all of these little things because then what you get is this map of them, this understanding of them, um, this uh, opening into a, a compassionate sense of them. So then how do we do that? And this is coming into this uh, understanding of Vipassana meditation, for instance, is we break out the sensing experiences so that we can be familiar with the pure sensing of it. So in visual experience, if your eyes are open and you're looking at the world, uh, is it solid? Is everything in, in focus? Um, everything is defined? Then what you're actually in is the experience of conceptual reality, not in the experience of sensing. But can you uh, look at the world outside and then not fixate it? Just 
open to the possibility of the pure sensing with external sound. Can you hear a sound just as the vibration of the sound and not in what the mind is making it into? So in the beginning, of course, everything is habitually fixated and solid and you hear a sound and it is something already. Can you then pull it apart so you have both the experience of what it is that you make and the vibration of the sound as pure sound? The same is true of the body. Can you touch into the body and feel a sensation in the body and not make it into something, not make the body solid? Just let it be energy and then compare that to how you make it solid. So depending on the approach um, or the lineage of um, Buddhist teachings, there's different ways to do that. One way is to expand awareness out and hold everything in the center of awareness and just watch them arise and pass just these, these vibrating uh, spaces. Um, moving away from fixating anything and just letting it be this flow of energy. Or you could zoom in and, and touch into the pure sensing experience and then zoom out a little bit and see what it is that you've made it into. Um, but well, that's what we're really trying to do here is to see the data and see how we make the data. And then uh, we move into this place of uh, responding to it so that the whole process includes this intention and action. How do you respond to each of these uh, ways in which you make the experience of self and world? Uh, and are you reacting to the experience of the present moment or are you have you momentarily been pulled into the content of the database and then reacting in the way that you have previously reacted. Have you noticed that sometimes you just respond? It's almost like a knee-jerk response or a habitual response to experience, not really seeing clearly that you're not in the database, you're not in the history of your responses, but you are in this present moment, which is unique and different than the previous uh, experiences, and, and that you you have a whole range of possibilities of response that are not limited by what the previous responses have been. And can you evaluate them and choose uh, a, an action that's skillful or do you find that you simply repeat the actions that you're used to taking? I like to talk about this in, in this aspect of it as a, a quantum mechanic. Uh, that sort of uh, uh, quantum mind consciousness. So in each moment in front of you is the full range of every full range of every single possibility that you could choose in response to what's happening in the present moment. But that as soon as you pick one, of course, that waveform collapses into a particle, into the one choice that you've made. And then what opens the next moment is all of the range of all of the possibilities that you can choose that are linked to the previous choice that you made. In Buddhism, we call this uh, knowledge of conditionality. 
the present, the conditions in the present moment open to the possibility of all other conditions. But as soon as you obligate yourself to, to a response to creating a karmic thread, all of the possibilities except the one that you've chosen fall away. And then what comes next is the, the, um, the possibilities that are linked to that. And when we're unconscious and not engaged in this experience, we just move uh, unconsciously into the database. The present moment no longer remains the present moment. It becomes the experience in the database. And then the actions that we took uh, previously uh, that are registered in the database, uh, we repeat in the present moment and it creates uh, this rut, uh, samsara, uh, is often described as a rut. One of the ways that the Buddha described it is that you have a cart with two wheels in India at the time, these ox carts, the wheels were a similar distance apart. And, and then in the rainy seasons, one ox cart would pull down the road and it would create a rut. And then as more ox carts went down the road, the ruts got deeper and deeper. And so your ox cart would just slip into the ruts and you would go in the direction of the ruts and it would take a lot of effort to pull out of them. That's making sense. I was in, when I was in Myanmar in, in the mountains, um, the ox carts were still uh, in use and it was so poetic uh, to see them, although uh, I'm not sure the oxes felt that <laughs> Pulling a card full of lumber was poetic. <laughs> um, so this is this moment. You you come into the present moment and you 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 take this uh, moment to examine all of the possibilities that could be there. And then you choose one because it makes sense based on your conditioning. And this is one of the things about uh, imagination that I was alluding to earlier. If you can't imagine something different than uh, what happens to you, uh, then you don't see the, the possibilities. Christian? I'm, uh, I'm curious. Um, I just... I just made a pretty poor choice with someone. Oh. <laughs> and now I kind of have uh, have to do some repair. Um, you know, and beyond sort of the shame of, you know, behaving bad, I won't get too, too much into it. But when you make an unskillful choice, what do you do with um, then doubting, sort of doubting yourself and your ability to make better choices? Is that just, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, I think the I made, I made an unskillful choice and now I'm like, maybe a, lot of, maybe a lot of me arose in that, you know, it's like, this is me who makes unskillful choices. Whereas, so it's, it's like harder to trust myself. Right. Um, so the first thing about making unskillful choices is that you have to repair as fast as you possibly can, because the longer you wait, so the sense of self rises and you feel chagrined and you don't want to respond to it. Um, that's the wrong choice because the longer you wait to respond, the, the deeper the damage is. 
you can repair something in two seconds that two days later you can't repair because in two seconds it hasn't had time to have the effect that it will have over two two days. So really, the you want to repair it as fast as soon as you recognize it. You want to try and repair it. Oh my God, I I, I made a boneheaded move. One of the things about this is everybody makes boneheaded moves. And so we all have a sense of compassion for doing that, which if you don't wait too long, will be engaged. And then you can collaborate on how to repair it. If you don't know how to respond to somebody, then you have to move into the collaborative system with them. I want to express this in a way that, that, that's useful to us uh, in this relationship but I'm unsure how to do it. Can you help me uh, by telling me how uh, you can, what's a good way for you to receive the kind the communication that I'm trying to express to you? Because you don't need to know all of the answers. You need to collaborate with the person about how the relationship can go in a way that each of you feels your needs are being met. Um, I made a mistake is, is totally a fine. I, I had a moment, I like to call it a moment of mindlessness. Uh, and I, 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 I can see by your reaction that it wasn't uh, helpful. And I, and this is, and I want, uh, I'm hoping that you will give me an opportunity to try and uh, effectively communicate what I was trying to. And that's just, that's being authentic, right? Mm -hmm. That's an authentic expression. Um, rather than a defense of the self, I'm myself is so great, it could never make a mistake, or you misunderstood me, or I didn't mean that, all of those things, which the other person has a hard time believing. And as soon as they have a hard time believing you, they don't trust you anymore, and it makes it harder and harder to communicate with. But if you wait too long, the, the damage is unrepairable most of the time. Nobody needs to be perfect. And actually, if you sum up most people's lives, it's they're so far from perfect, it's not even a topic. <laughs> uh, people do respond to authenticity and they respond to uh, people who take responsibility for things. And if they don't respond to that, that they're probably not a good person to be close to. There's that side of it. You really want to be, you want to surround yourself with people who cherish you and value you and delight in you and want to be protective of the relationship because it's valuable to them. Not uh, people who are um, more likely to exploit. And this, uh, we could talk about this in terms of attachment too, because secure people—that's how they operate. They they find people who are reliable and helpful and trustworthy, and they value them, and they really try to keep those relationships going. And insecurely attached people don't believe that that's a possibility, and so they don't operate from that basis. So. But um, also, um, 
if you if you are open and are willing to uh, try and repair these things, you you appear actually more reliable rather than less reliable. Any other questions about um, the the blather that you've just heard? <laughs> uh huh. What about um, entering into new spaces, entering into places in life that you haven't experienced before and just, you know, wanting to make the best of a, a situation that you haven't experienced before, like aging, you know, coming of age kind of things? <laughs> um. So this is the imagination piece and the exploration piece. You want to really see, this is where accuracy and truthfulness is really useful. If you can accurately understand what actually is happening, then as you attempt to make a response to it and pay attention to what happens, you can take in the response to your action and navigate in a kind of goal correcting way toward uh, uh, the place of meaning. Um, and so it's a kind of experimentation. One of the things about uh, exploration and people who are good at exploring is that they're, they're resilient, but where the resilience comes from is their understanding that um, most exploration doesn't go anywhere. So it's not, uh, they don't experience it as a failure that it doesn't go anywhere. They take in the data and they adjust their next response to see if they can get more in the direction that they want to go. And then when they actually hit something that has meaning and value, they really value it because they're there. There's a guy named Paul Drucker who writes about business and in particular, he writes about uh, how nonprofits can, can flourish which I find quite interesting. And he says that the number one mistake that most people make is that they, they don't take in the, the data of what happens in response to what they do. They stick to their business plan. And so you're constantly wanting this process to be complete, to take in the data, to create the model of it, to make the intention and take the action and then see what happens and then adjust the next cycle based on what happens, not on what you want to have happen or what you didn't want to have happen. So you're constantly in this process of being in the present moment, trying to accurately understand what's happening and then seeing what uh, effect your action has on the experience. And you're just moving from that process of uh, taking in the data, making the intention, taking the action, seeing what happens, that's the taking in the data, right? Seeing what happens and then reforming the next action in response to that, constantly moving forward. How's that? Thank you. <laughs> um, Neil? Um, I just want to say that advice about repairing ruptures as soon as possible it's just such good advice uh, especially if you have if you have avoidant tendencies and procrastinate about uh, confrontations it's uh i think it's great that's just excellent advice but um just but you're saying earlier you were 
it, you what were you describing mentalizing right just right. this ability to when you're in a relationship with someone to recognize that their their perspective is likely to be very different than yours right that's, that's what we call mentalizing right is that right yeah. to be able to mentalize their perspective as different from yours is the active active activity of mentalizing Good. So let's do some meditation. I'm gonna just do a, a, a simple um, concentration practice so that we can settle in and then do some see, hear, feel and then go into a, a see, hear, feel, focus in, focus out. And I'm gonna talk about uh, the types of mentalizing that the, the meditation uh, creates when you do it. So. You do the technique which creates this perception of things. And then um, there's an overlay of insight practice into the, the simple technique. When you're in the technique, you're just doing the technique. But if you notice an insight arising, it's totally fine to step out of the technique, contemplate uh, the insight. And when you're satisfied with the insight, uh, when you're satisfied contemplating the insight, come back into the technique. In Buddhist thought, of course, the only insights that are worth contemplating are the ones that lead directly to uh, liberation. But there's tons of insights that come up, psychological insights, practical insights, uh, memories, uh, fantasies, all sorts of things come up. And so you can attend to any of them if you want to. Uh, what tends to happen, of course, because we're all conditioned, is that the same insights come up over and over again. And once you've attended to one a few times, you don't need to interrupt the technique to do that. So go ahead and take your meditation postures. So how did that go? <laughs> Good. Juliet? It's me using my daughter's account. <laughs> ah. um, so I was kind of confused between like insights and distractions. Can you give me an example of like <laughs> what? And also, like when you're like exploring it and done with it, like how, when how do you know you're done with it? When you does that mean you get bored of it and then you stop? Right, exploring you're, it. You're some form of satisfaction, whether it's boredom or you've discovered what you can. So, so then what's the difference between like a distraction when you're like not, you know, like mindful of it anymore, and then versus like like is it can a fantasy be an insight if you're mindful of it? Well, if you got pulled into thinking, say you get caught up in thinking and you're distracted, mm -hmm. then you would recognize that you got distracted. And the insight then is that you lost uh, monitoring and got swept up in spontaneity. Okay. And then you try and investigate that a little bit. At what point did I get pulled away into the distraction from the meditation? And what was it that was distracting to me? Does that always distract me or just sometimes distract me? 
If it's only sometimes, why is it that this time was particularly distracting and at other times it wasn't distracting until you'd done all of that inquiry about it and then came back? Okay, so if you're distracted, once you're mindful of your, the distraction, then you explore and then you go back. But what, if, what about a real insight? Like what is that supposed to be? Like, what is that like? Well, the real insight in the, the thing that I just uh, talked about was that at a certain point, you made a decision to leave the meditation and go into the distraction. And if you right. can understand that, then each time you were presented with the choice of staying in the meditation or going into the distraction, you could choose to stay in the meditation and then your capacity to concentrate would develop. Right, so I get the insight that's, that comes out of the distraction, but is there an insight that doesn't kind of distraction? I'm just don't know, I'm not really understanding like what this, what are you ref you're referring to? So then, um, well, the, the insights related to enlightenment would be that everything is impermanent. So you would notice that all sensing experiences arise and pass away. Uh, and that you, there is no sensing experience that doesn't do that. Oh, so that was the one we're supposed to know? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, in terms of self, how do you, how do you, have a sense that the self is there doing this. And at what point is the self not there, not doing it? Um, and how do you know the experience of self? Uh, and how do you know when the experience of self is not there? That's the, that one avenue of insight. And then okay. the other main one is um, you live in a body. What is it like to live in a body? Uh, growing old, getting sick and dying. What's, what is it like to age? What's the difference between the body you have now and you're remembering the body when it was 10 years old or five years old? So are these insights that we're supposed to have when we're meditating or just examples of what, like the kind of experience you had? I mean, it could be anything or we're supposed to get these kind of insights when we're meditating. Well, it's the overlay of investigation. You practice in a certain way so that you can have these insights. That's one of the ways that you organize your practice. Okay. So tonight the overlay was mentalizing. What I wanted you to experience was the spontaneous versus the monitoring the internal versus external experience and then the cognitive versus effective. Okay. I didn't do self and world because uh, it's too much. <laughs> All at once. <laughs> Someone else? I was right. able to, hi. I was able to really um, like connect the feelings that were coming and going, like the pattern. I was able to see the pattern very pretty clearly this time and be conscious of it and almost even turn it pause i don't know not control it but i felt like i had the ability to choose you know by reflecting on it have a better outcome later later down and then i started seeing colors like right. when i when i was fearful they were bright and neon and then when i was soothing myself it was like a dark blue gray brown and then some white and then I felt free like I could see mountains and <laughs> I just saw 
more space. So Good. yeah, it was pretty amazing. Thank you. Good. Someone else? <clears throat> Christian. I'm trying to figure it out. I think I think I was realizing that I was finding being in like feel out space to be sort of regulating. Um, and I don't know, I found that interesting, but I, it, it was kind of nice. I was able to just go between a lot of different, um, a lot of the different things pretty freely and it didn't seem like it was very inhibited, which was kind of surprising because I had so much activity and I felt a little kind of dysregulated going into it. Whereas I feel like, especially like feel, feel in can be hard for me to have resolution in. Um, and I felt like just because maybe I have stronger emotions right now, it was, it was kind of nice to have clear resolution between that and then be able to go between the different spaces and realize, you know, where, where a feeling would take me into, um, into some auditory thought, which would, you know, produce a, uh, an image and kind of just dancing between all those different things. So I don't know. It was just, it was just interesting. Good. Interesting is good. <laughs> all right. So thank you. Thank you all for uh, coming. Um, I'm trying to think of what's coming up. Uh, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday is the second in the in the level one series of day longs every two weeks for the next uh, couple of months. Uh, then there'll, there'll be the third one two weeks after that. And then the fourth one, which is the meditation and attachment for couplings about collaborative relationship skills. Uh, we have a level two coming up in the spring. Um, I have a, uh, 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 a weekend retreat coming up in April with the uh, Recovery Dharma Collective, the meditation and attachment for addiction series. We have addiction issues and are interested in that. We're, we're gonna do that again. Um, and then in June, we'll have a, a, a virtual retreat for six days. I think most of the dates for that are up on the website. The, the virtual retreats actually are working pretty well. So we're, we're excited to do that again. I offer the teachings on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll make a, a donation to support me and also to support Metagroup. You can find a link on the website or in the email that you may have received about the class. Any amount is uh, appreciated. Um, and then, of course, if you're not resourced, don't worry about it. The, the, the Metagroup community will support this space for you to practice. Thank you uh, for coming, and we'll see you soon. Bye.